This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I am joined today by one of my two co-hosts, Liel Leibovitz, Tablet's editor-at-large. Misha, 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 Misha. Uh, happy Purim to those who are still sober. All right, Liel, put the drink down and let me take this one, because it's not just Purim that we're celebrating this week. It's 100 years since the first bat mitzvah in America. And Judith Rosenbaum from the Jewish Women's Archive joins us to tell us about the milestone. Then you'll hear a story from Emma Sokoloff-Rubin about how she grew to love her curly Jewish hair. And we talked to Debbie Habak, co-author of the 1980s preppy handbook parody, The Jewish American Princess Handbook. It's a pretty feminist episode this week. It's kind of awesome. And even though we're not doing our regular thing, the news of the Jews, our usual interviews with a Jew and Gentile of the week, I think you'll really enjoy it. Except for the fact that we're missing our third host, Mark Oppenheimer. Liel, where's Mark? I believe he is on the 19th leg of his whirlwind international book tour, isn't he? He's a man of mystery. I'm happy for him that he's on book tour, but I'm also just like, the show must go on and we 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 do need him here. I think secretly he's just he just passed out reading the Megillah last <laughs> night. He's just drunk in shul. Would you say he read the whole Megillah? I, I think Mark is a traditionalist when it comes to the Megillah. I think he's all the way deep. And look, when you have five kids and Purim comes along and they're all on sugar rushes, this is this is a professional hazard. You should have the day off. I think the dictate is to drink so much you can't tell the difference between which of your kids is which, right? Right. Is that what they say? Which which should be hard on any given day when there's five. Be like, you're Anna? I want, I, I'm going to say Ellie? I don't know. So, Liel, can you tell us, for people who don't know the story of Purim, who remember it very vaguely from dressing up in Hebrew school, have never heard of the word Purim, don't even know who Haman is, give us like the, the podcast cliffs notes of this holiday. Well, the story starts in the land, in a faraway land where the caravan camels roam. It's vast and immense and the heat is intense. It's chaotic, but hey, it was home to a lot of Jews. Uh, it starts with a very drunken king who is sort of, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it, a Trump-like character, a sort of bamboozling, baffled, and somewhat completely out of his element ruler uh, who throws a massive, massive festivity. The biggest of all time, a lot of people are saying, much bigger than the previous king. And in the center of this festivity, he demands that his wife come and perform for all the guests naked. As you can imagine, there are reams and reams of commentary on why this demand was made. Long story short, TLDR, she refuses, is then, of course, promptly killed. And then it's time for a reality show to find a new wife. A reality show takes place. New wife is found. She is this young woman named Esther, who unbeknownst to the king, but beknownst to us, is Jewish. Cut to sort of like a B plot line in which her uncle gets into a bit of a tiff with Haman, who is the king's right-hand man. Haman gets mad, decides to kill all the Jews. The queen is afraid to step up and subvert this decree, but then finds her voice, finds her courage, subverts the decree, Haman and his sons are hung on the same tree that they prepared for Mordechai, Esther's uncle, and then the Jews go on a murderous rampage and kill their enemies in self-defense slash a celebration of justice. This is the true story of Purim, and each year we are commanded to do a whole host of delightful things on this day, basically to kind of celebrate the day in which the world, to quote another great Jewish philosopher, turned upside down. <laughs> and so we uh, we get dressed up. 
we are commanded to drink until we don't know the difference between the righteous Mordechai and the evil Haman. We give charity to the poor. We give cakes and cookies and other sweets to our friends. And we hold feasts in celebration of Purim. It is overall the absolute best. Alcohol, violence, and complex carbs. There's nothing better than that. But Stephanie, the real star, the one who shines, the one who is known to television audiences worldwide as Miss Purim herself. You were on CBS Morning Show this week explaining everyone's favorite holiday. Stephanie Butnick is deputy editor of Tablet Magazine and host of the podcast Unorthodox. She explains the story of Purim begins in ancient Persia with a king, a queen, and a villain, the king's advisor Haman, or as some say, Haman. And Haman hates the Jews. What he does not know is that Esther, the queen, is secretly Jewish. And so when he... It was amazing. You were so freaking incredible. Tell us about your star turn. Thank you. It was really, really fun. I was on CBS Sunday morning this past Sunday talking about Hamantaschen for their Purim segment. And as it turns out, everyone watches that show. Quite literally, like everyone in the universe was coming out of the woodwork being like, I saw you on TV. But it was really, really fun. And welcome to all the, the new listeners who are here because they saw me and decided they wanted more of me. And that's what you're going to get. And it's too late now. You can't turn this off. <laughs> to those listeners, I'm I'm sorry. I, I have a face for radio. So, you know, we are the universe's leading Jewish podcast, but here you are entrusted quite literally as telling the whole story of Purim on behalf of the entire Jewish people to the whole world that's tuning in and listening. <laughs> a little bit stressful, no, doing that? You know, it was a big responsibility, but what did Mordecai say in the Purim story? Like for a moment such as this, not to like go all Queen Esther on you, but no, it was a little bit intimidating, not just because, you know, yeah, like we're we're radio folks. We hide behind our, our mics and our screens and our glasses and our pajamas. But being interviewed on camera was like, it was hard just to sort of be smart and funny and also have these like really bright lights on you and also remember that someone is looking at you. You know, when we do interviews on the show, what my face is doing doesn't matter. But on TV, I was sort of like, what do I do with my hands? What what, what? <laughs> forget forget hands? Like what do what do you do with your face? Like this is <laughs> the, the few times I've done TV appearances. Like I look like I'm having like a mild seizure because I'm like I'm trying to look like thoughtful and concentrated, but I, I look constipated <laughs> instead. It's very unnatural. The best parts of the the host of the segment was Faith Saley, who is amazing, and I think is going to come on our podcast as a guest gentile, which will be great. But she we did a walk and talk through the office. She said, you know, we're going to round this corner and we're going to be talking. And, and the question she asked me when we were talking was, how old were you when you had your first hamantash? And the segment was all about hamantash. And, and I said to her, I was like, wait, what do you do with your hands when you walk? Like, what does one do? <laughs> she's sort of like, well, you just hold them here. You know, she's actually done lots of walk and talks before. It was felt like it was an Aaron Sorkin movie. See, I, I pretend like I'm twirling a baton because it's the only thing I could think of when I'm walking. I'm like, let me just do this weird <laughs> circular motion that nobody wants to watch. Here's the magic of TV, though. They tell the story of Purim very succinctly in that segment. And Leo, you were sort of coaching me the night before. We were going through like, here's the story. Here's how to tell it. Here are the notes to hit. And I will say that a lot of those notes did not make it into the segment. We were, <laughs> I think you and I were like, I remember you told me, you're like, well, he actually, the king couldn't reverse the decree because once a decree goes out, you can't reverse it. But what he did instead, <laughs> and then I get to the interview and it's like, we need, we need just like just the hard facts. There's the queen, there's the king, there's the evil villain. Or just the heartwarming facts. 
Right. I was like, don't forget to mention Charbonnet. It's very important in the story. Parshandata and Big Tan and Teresh must be name-checked. Part of me was sort of thinking, oh my God, who's going to get mad at me for leaving like this big detail out? And actually, you know what? I haven't heard from anyone angry at me yet, which is weird because most podcast episodes you hear from like at least three people who are mad about something we've said. <laughs> That's true. And I think you did a tremendous job. That haven't been said. The fact you did leave out is, dare I say, my absolute favorite thing about Purim. This is this is the difference between, you know, Purim in Israel and Purim here. Purim in Israel is a very different experience. First of all, we do Mishloach Manot all around, which is, of course, preparing a nice little kind of like gift bag filled with sweets and candies for your friends. It's like Harry and David's, but Jewish. Oh, no, 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 no not at all. Because it's it, here. here's the amazing thing about it. Everyone comes in in the morning and brings all their Mishloch Manots and we put it on, on the teacher's desk, right? And you sit there the entire day because you only exchange the Mishloch Manot towards the end of the day because the teachers want to actually do like a little bit of teaching. So you sit there and you look at it and it becomes really, really evident to you that there is a wild class system or even a caste system, I would say, in the Mishloch Manot. There is Mishloch Manot that is like a beautiful like plastic plate laden with hamantashen and fancy candy bars and like bonbons and beautiful filler paper. And it's all wrapped in this delightful, colorful cellophane with a bow. And those were prepared. Can you guess by whom? I want to say the girls. Is that gendered? Of course, the girls. It's prepared by the girls. It's prepared by people who actually take care and have heart and soul and like want something to actually look nice and delight. Then there are the Mishlach Manot prepared by the boys, which is basically like someone took the morning paper, put like two pieces of like bamba in it and then like squunch it together. Be like, here, Mishlach Manot, happy Purim, here you go. And you had a random lottery at the end of the day. So you never knew. Which is fitting with Purim, the festival of lots. By the way, none of the teachers ever got the irony that literally we're doing it in the same way that we celebrate because they tried to kill us in this method. But let me tell you, getting getting one of the boys as Mishloch Manot, that felt a lot like drawing like a death sentence because at that point you're not eating anything. But that is not the reason why I love Purim so much. The reason I love Purim so much is because once you get through all the business with, you know, oh, Haman and the queen and the thing, you get to the real meaning of Purim, which is, of course, the fact that since the king says, well, I can't reverse the decree, I can't tell all the people in my kingdom not to go kill the Jews, but I could let you rise up and kill your enemies. And so the Jews do, and they kill quite a few. And then Esther goes back to Ahasuerus and said, we need another day of killing. And so altogether, the Jews kill 75,000 people throughout this two-day bloodshed of a festival, which is the real essence of Purim. And I love it, not just because it's a kind of a bloody tour de force, which in of itself should be troubling, but honestly, because there's something profoundly right about it. Because Haman wasn't some hothead, you know, who just like, got dragged into it. He planned this. He took his time. He selected a date. The date was months and months and months in the future. And when you subvert justice and basic human decency in such a way, and a lot of people went together with Haman's decree, when you stand up to human decency in this way, you must be punished. And the punishment must be severe because otherwise, 
all the foundations of human morality, all the foundations of society, all the defenses that we, you know, grant our people, the notion that you could live in a big, diverse kingdom like Ahasuerus' kingdom, they don't mean anything unless there's actually a point to it, unless you know that you actually pay a price. That's what I love about Purim. That and uh, the commandment to get drunk, which I will be observing this year, like every year, like every Thursday. Leave it to you to take like a very fun and festive holiday and remind us that it has like really dark and graphic and gory origins. If you're joining us for the first time now, (laughs) this is an Orthodox. Well, Purim is a really, really fun holiday and um, people read Purim spiels. The phrase, the whole Megillah, comes from the reading of the Megillah of Esther, the book of Esther, which I feel like no one knows. I feel like we're not talking about that enough. And I just wishing all of our listeners a very, very happy Purim. We've got a gorilla for sale. One hundred years ago this week, the first bat mitzvah was held in America. This weekend, there are all sorts of festivities to mark the milestone. You might even call it a rite of passage. Judith Rosenbaum of the Jewish Women's Archive returns to the show for a conversation with me and my co-host Mark Oppenheimer about the centennial celebration and the cultural impact of the bat mitzvah in American Jewish society. Judith Rosenbaum, welcome back to the show. So glad to be back with you. And what a fun occasion to be celebrating the centennial, the bat mitzvah centennial. Yes, I'm sorry that I did not dig out my bat mitzvah dress to put on for this occasion, but it was very poofy. I think that's the like the requirement, right? Like a lot of tool, a lot of layers, no matter what era it was. Yes, and I was bat mitzvah in the 80s, so... My also my bang. I should have. I could have blown my bangs high the way they were at the time. You did not have big high bangs, Judith. I Rosenbaum. did. I did, did you? You. I did. will send you a picture. Do you still have the dress? Do you know if you wanted to go find it? Until very recently, it did, and my father's house is undergoing some cleaning. <laughs> it was only gotten rid of a couple months ago. Believe it or not. It's so funny because I think a lot of us think today when we hear about mitzvah, you think of the party, you think of the dress. But actually, you know, it's not really about that at all. And I feel like what JWA is doing on the centennial is sort of taking us back to its roots. So can you just tell us like what, where does the bat mitzvah come from? It's not actually, it's 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 sort of much newer than the bar mitzvah. I mean, tell us about the centennial and why it's so important. Yeah. So, well, I'm so glad that you said that because I, one of my sort of pet peeves is that I feel like, you know, bat mitzvah gets a lot of play in popular culture, but usually in a way that is sort of silly and insulting in some ways. Like it's sort of a a way that assumes that it's not that meaningful and that it's mostly about materialism and in a way that I think is like subtly misogynistic and assumes that girls are kind of superficial. And it's actually a story that's about like advocating for change and pushing radicalism and like working for equality and inclusion. And so I feel like this anniversary is an opportunity to lift up that story. And and then also, as you mentioned, like most people sort of assume because bar and bat mitzvah both are kind of this like quintessential Jewish ritual, there's kind of this assumption that they like exist from the Torah or something. And, and most of the time, like when I encounter young people, and even not young people, they have no idea that bat mitzvah has only been around for a hundred years. And on the one hand, there's something sort of sweet about that. Like the idea that this once not so long ago radical ceremony is now such a given that people assume it was like happening a thousand years ago. There's a kind of 
nice entitlement to that, you know, entitlement in the best possible way of feeling like you belong and you deserve to be included. On the other hand, I think if we don't understand how change happens, then we don't understand how to make change. And we lose part of the story of the people who made that change and also like what we can learn from that process. So it's kind of exciting to revisit that and to use this anniversary as an opportunity to tell that story and to go back a hundred years and look at the story, which also it's like, you know, when you celebrate an anniversary, it's a nice opportunity. I'm a historian, so I'm always into these kinds of things, but often they're done in a pretty boring way. Like, oh, this thing happened. It happened this many years ago. Yay. Right. And I think what's interesting about this story is that it's not finished and it's not like it happened in one moment. It's not like Judith Kaplan had her bat mitzvah. Wait, so what is the story, Judith Rosenbaum? So 100 years ago on March 18th, 1922, Judith Kaplan, who was a 12-year-old girl and the daughter of Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, who goes on to be known as the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, but at that point was just this kind of maverick rabbi who had just founded the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, a new synagogue, um, which he wanted to be innovative. One of the things he decided was going to be one of its innovations was greater opportunities for women. And so he thought he would kick that off by inviting his his eldest of four daughters to have her bat mitzvah at SAJ on Shabbat morning. And that was the first bat mitzvah. Now, it looked a little bit different from bat mitzvah now. Even though this was a radical act at the time, she actually didn't go up to the bima. She came to the front of the synagogue and sat in the men's section um, but she was not allowed on the bima, and she also didn't read from the Torah scroll. She read from a chumash, from a printed book, after the Torah had been put away. So, and she read in English and in Hebrew. And she actually, this is the part that I always think is probably frightening to the bat mitzvahs who are preparing today. She only found out what she was reading the night before, <laughs> like a real pop quiz, right? Exactly. But she was, she knew Hebrew well. She was very musical, so she. And she clearly had a lot of poise for a 12-year-old and was able to go with the flow. It was a little bit scandalous for both her grandmothers who were kind of like, what? Why are, why are you doing this? But, you know, she did it and she stood up and it was a little scary, but it also wasn't, you know, she wrote later on that like, you know, the earth didn't shake and thunder didn't clap and things went on. But so did were there protesters outside? Was there like a schism on the board with people threatening to like cut off their membership? I mean, what what was sort of like the intra-Jewish conversation about it at the time? Well, you know, so the board had discussed it. Mordechai Kaplan had had proposed this to the board just like a month before. Um, and, and it had passed. So, you know, this was an institution as it remains, a, a really interesting place. And, and SAJ as it's now called, has been JWA's partner in celebrating this anniversary. And it's a really cool community. So the people who were on the board were there. They were there for it. They were like, we we came to this place because it's going to be new and innovative. And so they were open to it. Um, so there wasn't like, you know, protesting in the streets, but also nothing really changed afterwards. That was the other thing. Like this happened and then it continued to happen at SAJ and not really anywhere else for a number of years. But also it wasn't what the way we understand bat mitzvah now or bar mitzvah then and now, which is that it's the entryway of a young person into being a full participant in Jewish life. So presumably you have your bar or bat mitzvah and then you are allowed to continue doing those things that you did for the first time on your bat mitzvah. And that wasn't the case at the time. So it's not like Judith Kaplan could read this part of her Torah portion, and then continue to do that. This was a one-time thing. It was just meant to mark the moment of coming of age, but it was not, it didn't change anything in what women were allowed to do at that time. 
Right. I mean, I remember learning in a very good college class I took on women in Judaism that, in fact, we don't know when the second bat mitzvah was. I mean, I guess there was some at SAJ, but that it didn't open the floodgate. We couldn't name the first dozen synagogues that that had this ritual, that in fact, there weren't benot mitzvah, broadly speaking, for 30 more years as a kind of regularized, routinized part of American Jewish reform and conservative culture. Do we know when, like the way that we think about, you know, bat mitzvahs now, like you study for it, you have it, maybe it's an aliyah, maybe you're reading Torah, maybe Haftorah. When did that become a thing, right after World War II? Do we have any idea of when and how it kind of found its traction? So we we know more about it now or we're about to because Rabbi Carol Balin is writing a great book about this and she's done a huge amount of research to kind of uncover the, some of the first places. And part of what I've learned from her is that it really was a very grassroots process. So like, it's not like it was a top-down thing where Mordechai Kaplan said, we can do this. And now a bunch of people did this and then it spread on and other rabbis said, now our movement does this and we can do this. Instead, it was like a synagogue here, a synagogue there in pretty random places trying it out. And sometimes it was because, like in the case of Kaplan, a rabbi had daughters. Sometimes it was because someone had boy-girl twins, like I do, and was like, huh, it's a little awkward. I'm doing this thing for my son. (laughs) And actually, my daughter, like, is just as good at Hebrew school. And, you know, maybe she should have a chance to do something. Sometimes it happened at camp. One of the things that Carol has uncovered is that camps were really important because camps were sort of more experimental and more informal. And a lot of things were allowed to happen at camp that wouldn't happen in the more formal confines of a synagogue where like a ritual committee might have to approve something at camp, kind of anything goes. So um, at camps, especially some camps that had disciples of Kaplan running them, but also just, you know, that was a place where people could push the boundaries a little bit. So sometimes girls had bat mitzvahs at camp. And so those kind of caught on through the 20s and 30s. The other thing that's interesting is that, you know, most people assume that, like, innovations around changing tradition would happen first in the reform movement. But actually, the reform movement had kind of sidelined bar mitzvah because they preferred confirmation. They were doing confirmations into the 60s and 70s, even at at reform temples. Right. And they had been doing them since, like, the mid-19th century. So they were not so interested in innovating in bar mitzvah and adding bat mitzvah, they were sort of focused on confirmation, which one of its pluses was that it could involve girls and boys. Um, So it was the conservative movement, actually, that picked up bat mitzvah first. And so by mid-century, you know, there were, you know, probably a a majority of conservative synagogues were doing something by the mid-50s, but it still didn't look comparable to what boys were doing. And, And it really took until the 70s with sort of also the push of the women's movement for those ceremonies to become a little bit more equal. And a lot of that was led by girls. And even earlier than that, actually, at SAJ in the 40s, there were girls who sort of started to point out like, hey, you're having us study to have a bat mitzvah, but then you don't let us do any of these things again. So what is the point? Like, why should I learn to do this to do it once? Why can't I do it again? You know, it's it's interesting because my cohort got bat mitzvahed in 2000, like that beginning of the aughts, and none of our mothers had gotten bat mitzvahed for the most part. So it's it's kind of interesting to me, like when the first generation of girls will be bat mitzvahed whose mothers, I mean, that's probably happening already. But to me, it was just so funny, like, yeah, my mom didn't do it. My Her grandmother didn't do it. But then the, we've also seen this resurgence of like the late in life bat mitzvah as well, right? Exactly. So adult bat mitzvah. And that's part of what I love about this story is that, you know, there's the aspect of girls kind of calling the question and leading the way. And then also their mothers picking up on that and being like, wait a second, like my daughter gets to do this. Why don't I get to do this? Or, 
you know, if my daughter, if now we see that girls can do these kinds of things, then let's look at all the other ways that women should be allowed access into Jewish life. So it doesn't end just with bat mitzvah. You know, it also, bat mitzvah sort of normalizes the presence and leadership of girls and women. And then girls and women push it further and ask for other things and say, hey, we've proven that we can do this. And now also like, could I be president of the board of the synagogue too? And, you know, so other kinds of things happen. And I think that context is also important. Like, I think we shouldn't forget that 1922 is coming right after the suffrage movement. And there in the air is this sense that this is going to be an era of more opportunity for women. And also it's, we're beginning to believe that women should have equal access and have the capability to be more in positions of public leadership and voice. It's so funny that 100 years later, we're sort of having these same conversations, but it seems like an apt time to celebrate this. So what's going on this weekend? Like, what are the celebrations? How can people get involved who aren't necessarily um, there with you? We have been partnering with SAJ, as I mentioned. Rabbi Lauren Graybell Herman is the leader there. And so this is part of their 100th anniversary. And so we're kicking off the weekend with an event on Thursday, March 17th, which is today. But our sense was because, as I said, bat mitzvah developed in this really grassroots way, that that is how it should be marked. And that this is something that there shouldn't be like a top-down sense of like, this is how we mark the anniversary of bat mitzvah. But just like bat mitzvah, which looks different in every congregation, which developed differently in every congregation, that this was an opportunity to encourage communities to celebrate in the way that fits their community. And so we declared this a national Shabbat, and we have hundreds of synagogues across North America who are participating in some form or another. We put together a whole bunch of resources, which you can see at batmitzvah100.org, including educational resources, including new liturgy that can be used, including story collecting tools. JWA is always collecting stories and loves to hear people's bat mitzvah stories. Um, which you can record on our site or on our story collecting app, including a great project that SAJ and Mick Moore led, an Instagram project of video diaries of Judith Kaplan leading up to her big moment as if there were Instagram in 1922 and sort of talking about what it was like to be a 12-year-old girl in that moment and all kinds of resources. So communities are, you know, some are calling up the first bat mitzvah in their community and honoring her. Some are calling up this year's bat mitzvahs or everyone who's been bat mitzvahed in the synagogue. Some are using this as an opportunity to collect the stories. Some are, I'm speaking at my synagogue. You know, people are doing all different kinds of things. A lot of people are incorporating it into whatever education is happening this week. But also people are using it as an opportunity to talk about what I think is part of the exciting story about this, which is that it's an unfinished revolution. And, you know, we are still exploring these questions of what does it mean to really make room for full participation of Jews in our communities. And so like some communities are in the midst of conversations about what does a non-binary rite of passage look like and how does our synagogue mark that. Some communities are thinking a lot about how do we include people with different kinds of abilities? Like if you have a, a ceremony that's traditionally required you to know Hebrew, be able to sing, be able to read, be able to speak, right? Like all these things, be able to be come up to the Torah. Like people are asking a lot of questions about what are the different ways that we can engage in Jewish life in ways that are, you know, that fit everybody. And so I think those conversations are also what we are inviting people into. 
So let me ask you this. I know the three of us probably all get asked this question in our travels um, as, you know, people who are not rabbis, but who are Jewish communal professionals. What did we wear at our bat mitzvahs? No, no, is that no, the question? No, no, no. The question Who are you is, wearing? <laughs> parents are so panicked and rabbis are so panicked and everyone wants to make sure that it's fun, but doesn't turn into just the party and that it's meaningful, but, but not frighteningly so, not anxiety inducing. Like, what should it be? What is your, when people say like, why should we do this? And what, what does a good one look like? And I don't want you to say whatever it means to you. I, I guess I'm asking a more personal question than that. Like when you in your heart of hearts see a community, whether it's your synagogue or another one, call a, a girl becoming a woman, Jewish woman to the Torah or to the Bema as a bat mitzvah, what makes it a good event? So I think that's a really interesting question. I think probably a lot of us have more opinions about what it shouldn't look like, right? It shouldn't be a rote performance that's just about jumping through a hoop and getting presents. It shouldn't be marking the end of Jewish education as it too often does. Obviously, it's not what it was originally intended to be. Bar and Bat Mitzvah is not really marking entry into adulthood. That's obviously not happening at 13 anymore. But I think really it should be about becoming an engaged member of the community, whatever that means to you. And I think actually the history of bat mitzvah provides a good model for this, right? You know, initially girls were allowed to do certain things. They were given access. But what made bat mitzvah really take hold was that girls started to push the questions. They noticed what wasn't fair or what didn't make sense to them. And they said, hey, you know, we see ways for our community to do this better, to be more equitable and inclusive and um, that opened the door to a lot of creativity in Jewish life. So, you know, I think challenging your community requires a level of commitment, and that commitment is what this coming-of-age ritual should be about. That's so true. Also, this idea of, like, you're going to be in front of a room of people at your most vulnerable and awkward age, and you must opine about the Torah. Like, <laughs> something you probably— Like, I think it's really interesting to think of it almost as like the component parts of, of what it actually is. It's just so exciting. And I'm, I'm happy to have you here to celebrate this centennial with us. So Judith, what are all the ways people can follow along with the centennial, with JWA, with your podcast, everything? For the centennial, you can check out all the resources that we have at batmitzvah100.org. You can listen to JWA's podcast episode on Bat Mitzvah, which just came out on our podcast, Can We Talk, which you can find everywhere that you find podcasts. And there's lots more great stuff to listen to on the podcast too, not just about Bat Mitzvah. And this episode is actually the start of an anniversary series, Bat Mitzvah being the first one. And then we have a few other anniversaries coming up that we're marking. You can follow along on Instagram, Judith Kaplan 1922 to see the Instagram story video diaries, which is awesome. And there's a lesson plan on our site that goes along with them also. So there's lots of different ways to get connected and follow JWA.org in general and all of our socials. Judith Rosenbaum, thank you for being a return Jew of the week. I am so honored. It's just like my bat mitzvah. Today I am a woman. Well, I was going to say, today you are a podcast guest. Emma Sokoloff-Rubin is a lawyer and a writer and as you'll hear, a Jewish woman who has struggled to tame and embrace her curly hair. When I hit puberty, my hair got curly and unwieldy. It had always been thick, but more wavy thick than curly thick. Now it was curly thick, and I was not a fan. At first, I tried to tame it with hair gel. I'd pull it back in a tight ponytail and try to keep the wisps in place. It didn't work. 
Wisps of hair do not like to stay in place. I think it was around then that a friend gave me her old hair straightener, and then I got a newer, nicer one. Something about straightening my hair felt illicit, like wearing makeup or something. I wasn't not allowed to, but it didn't feel very feminist to straighten your hair. It did not cry out self-acceptance. It was not the kind of thing my mom did. I didn't straighten it all the time, maybe just every week or so, but I felt better when I did, more contained. My hair actually straightened pretty well. It didn't fight the heat too much, and I didn't try to get it six straight, just enough that I'd feel comfortable wearing it down. It looked pretty good. I hated the routine of it. The time spent in the downstairs bathroom running my hair through the hot metal plates, the time it took, the feeling of undoing it all when I washed my hair. I'm always hot. I hate humidity and love air conditioning. And I felt sticky and overheated when I finished straightening my hair. I also love swimming, but even a quick swim undoes all the hair straightening work. And then you have to start again. So basically, I wore my hair down when it was straight and in a ponytail when it wasn't. My high school friends tried to convince me to let my curls air dry and wear my hair down. I did a couple of times, and they said nice things, but I didn't quite believe them. I was a closer on our school's mock trial team. At a performing arts high school, being the mock trial closer is like being a quarterback at most high schools. For trials, I always tried to make sure my hair was straight. I didn't want to bring the team down. Straight hair seemed like winning hair. My sophomore year, we won state championships. That was also the year I ruined my carefully straightened hair the night in between semis and finals. We were staying at a hotel with a pool, and I couldn't bear to miss out on the fun. It was fine. I wore my hair in a ponytail the next day, and we still won. I remember having mixed feelings about the photos we took later, though. I thought I looked more lawyery with straight hair. Here I am, an actual lawyer now, and I haven't straightened my hair in close to 10 years. I don't own a straightener, and I don't plan to. I balked when the hair person at my friend's wedding tried to come near me with one. So how did that happen? How did I come to reject the hot iron? The shift happened in my mid-20s. A new friend, a fellow Jew with stunning curls, took up the same refrain as my high school and college friends. Your hair is beautiful, wear it down, that sort of thing. She even suggested specific products for me to use. My mom and one of my sisters had used these same products for years on their own curls and recommended them to me. But of course, I had never listened to them. When my friend gave me the same advice, I finally decided, what the hell? Also. I was working at a school where many of my colleagues had curly hair. When they told me my curls were beautiful, I believed them. It felt like they had my back and also like they were in it too. And maybe my hair actually was beautiful, is beautiful. So I got used to it. I'm still acutely aware of how unpredictable curly hair is. It would be easier to have straight hair just so I could predict how my hair would look on any given day. But now, when I do have a good hair day, I love it and I feel like myself, the boldest version of myself. 
It's a great feeling, but it can be scary too. Sometimes it makes me want to retreat. It's easier to be invisible with straight hair. It takes up less space. Now, when my hair looks awesome, it feels like mine. And when it doesn't, well, it's still mine. And by not straightening it, I got to read for a few more minutes or sleep or play with my kids. That's the other thing. I have two kids now. My daughter is four and it looks like she will have curly hair. Although when we forget to bathe her for several days, it looks pretty straight. And I'll love her just as much if her curls disappear with age. I really will. But I have this huge sense of pride in her hair. My husband has straight, fine, light brown hair. Easier, more predictable hair. But I'm not always easy or always predictable. And my daughter doesn't have to be either. So why should her hair? Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. We 
talk a lot about the Jewish American princess stereotype on this show, what it means and what kind of power it holds and how that's changed over time. Listener Lou Stone recently gifted me a used copy of the Jewish American Princess Handbook, a parody of the Preppy Handbook, an iconic 80s guide to being the ultimate wasp. Then we heard from another listener whose mom was friends with one of the authors. So thanks to a little Jewish geography, we connected with Debbie Hayback, who we convinced to come talk to us about this tongue-in-cheek bit of 80s cultural ephemera. Co-host Mark Oppenheimer joined me for the conversation. Debbie Hayback, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. So I have to say that last night, as I was getting my stuff ready to come into the studio, my my mother was over and she looked at this book and she says, what, 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 why do you have, what is this? Why, like, I, I, she hadn't seen this. She immediately knew what, what she was looking at, which is the Jewish American Princess Handbook. She was familiar with it and she had no idea why it was on my desk. And the reason it was on my desk is because one of our listeners actually found uh, a used copy and sent it to me and thought it's something that I should have as, as a, a Jewish podcaster, a Jewish, a female Jewish journalist. And basically what, what I mean to say by that anecdote about me is that there are people who see this book and are com- immediately familiar with like the genre of hand, the handbooks of this era and also what this particular one was. There are also people who have no idea what we're talking about. So I think the first question I want to ask is basically, what is this book? When did it come from? What was it in the style of? Why Why did you make, like introduce this or reintroduce this, this book to us? Well, in all honesty, the book is a direct copy of the Preppy Handbook meant to capitalize on all the success of the Preppy Handbook. I don't know if you guys were even alive then, but it was- Oh, Debbie, so I was born in 1974. So I I was young when the Preppy Handbook came out. He was raised on the Preppy Handbook. I discovered it as a teenager at a New England prep school. Oh. And it's honestly one of the five most formative books I've, I mean- I knew exactly what I was looking at when I read the Jewish American Princess Handbook because I knew the Preppy Handbook page by page. I could recite chunks of it. I know exactly what you're doing. And I thought it was a a brilliant homage to the Preppy Handbook. But a lot of our listeners won't know. So yeah, you should tell us a little bit more. The Preppy Handbook was a very popular handbook that pretty much poked fun at the preppy or waspy genre. So I worked in an advertising agency at the time. The president of the agency was friends with somebody who was a self-publisher. He had this great idea for a copy of the book. I hate to say rip off, uh, rip off of the preppy handbook. And he wasn't Jewish, knew nothing about it. And I was a typist at the time trying to become a writer. The head of the agency said, I have some Jewish girls you could talk to. I convinced him to let me write the book along with my best friend, Sandy Toback. She was in the media department of the advertising agency. And we sat down and we would sit in my apartment every weekend and knock it out straight from the preppy handbook. But she she had contacts all over the country. So we would check, you know, different cities to see what was popular. But pretty much everything was taken directly you know, like headings and lists and things like that, because that type of humor book was very popular during the early 80s. We've talked on our show before about how this stereotype of the Jewish American princess, the Jap, you know, is very offensive to some Jewish women, but is also reclaimed by some Jewish women. To this day, there are Jewish women, and we've interviewed them, who will refer to another Jewish woman and say, oh, well, you know, she's very Jappy and, and say, well, that's our term. And we, you know, it, there's a mix of affection and also insider knowledge that goes into it. And no, we wouldn't want someone from outside the community saying it, but it's okay for us to say it. 
I have to say, I'm I'm from the community where my mother would never have said it. My sister would never. We would. This was not a term we would have used. And yet, I have close female friends and colleagues, Jews, who use it very very casually and very knowingly. I'm curious where you were with this term back then. So this was not. You know, this book came out in 1982. I'm curious where you came from and Jewishly where you were from, and how did you use the term then? What did it mean to you then? Ironically. I, I was just out of college when I was writing the book. I grew up in Rogers Park in Chicago, which is a very middle-class neighbor. My father was a Chicago policeman at the time. My my parents, you know, while we were culturally Jewish, we, um, you know, my parents never tried to live above their means, anything. I mean, I had a very nice childhood. I had no idea that I was lacking anything. It wasn't until I got to college that I saw there was a whole other way to live. And when I was in school at the time, I went to the University of Illinois in the late 70s. I was an SDT sorority. So I was surrounded by all these girls from upper middle-class suburbs. I didn't even know that I was poor until, I went, not that I was poor, but you know, that I was just solid middle class until I went to college. And that's when that kind of stuff was very, very popular. You know, there were Jap t-shirts and Jap this and Jap that. And to me, it seemed, which now I cringe when I think, but it seemed aspirational at the time. That was something I aspired to. My greatest wish was to, you know, marry a nice wealthy guy, move to the suburbs and have kids, which clearly I raised my children very differently from that. You know, like I said, I was 22 when I wrote this book, so I didn't have very much world experience. That was the way I was brought up. Really, it was a freelance job. Otherwise, I never would have. So a lot of it was based on research. I mean, when you, you know, what's so great about the book, it's such a timepiece, right? Because it talks about how you have to have the Marameco pillows and you have to, (laughs) the the little candy dish has Barton's candies. And (laughs) I'm forgetting some of them, but there's a whole bunch of like different, uh, there were some brands that I had never heard of here that apparently were very, very important to the aspirational upper middle class Jewish girl or woman at the time. And and for you, you were learning this anew. Like this was research you were doing or research you'd gotten at your sorority. It's not stuff you grew up with. Both. I mean, like I said, for me, it was aspirational. So, you know, I was always taking notes in my head and I did it with a friend of mine who was, um, she was one of them. Yeah, she was brought up that way and she had more East Coast connections. So we used a lot of her resources. And and you have photos in here of what look like actual people. I mean, where did you get these photos from? That's the funny part. People were thrilled to participate. People would send pictures. People would say, I have to talk to you. I would have to tell you stories. And funnily enough, when it came out, some of those same people distanced themselves. I don't know what they thought it was going to be. And the, we found the ones that distanced themselves were the ones that were the most chappy. You know, I think there's something interesting happening here and it it sort of is happening again there I think today. You know, when you said this idea of like wearing a Jap t-shirt, this aspirational almost like Ameri- it's it's like an exceptionalism but it's also a deeply American consumerism. And so I wonder if there were a way in which these young women and their families that were sort of saying like we are here and we are yes a little bit gaudy in your face but we are able to do what everyone else does. We can get the fancy degrees. We can get the nice houses. We can do this. There was almost a way of like, that was how Jews were upwardly, like this very, very aggressive in your face thing. And they were proud of it. And so I almost think this book celebrates that in a little, I mean, it pokes fun at it, but. We thought it did, you know, this was such a long time ago that, you know, my kids too don't realize it, but 
people wanted to, especially Jews, wanted to assimilate. You know, it wasn't like now we're, and rightly so, people are proud of their culture and it's celebrated and things that are different from standard American culture, you know, are, are something to be proud of and, and celebrated. But back then, all anyone wanted to do was fit in. And especially in that age group, you just want to fit in and okay. assimilate. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, except, I mean, this is what's so interesting, right? Is on the one hand, you have like these really smart, interesting, kind of funny, but also painful pages about plastic surgery, about hair, you know, so I'll, uh, just let me give you a taste. And then I want to circle back to the paradox at the heart here, right? Plastic surgery, do's and don'ts. Do choose a surgeon who has a good reputation among other Jewish princesses. Do specify small nostrils. Do schedule your surgery at least five months before suntan season, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Don't choose a surgeon out of the phone book or one recommended by your friend Muffy Hicks Smith. Don't leave the decision about nostril size to your surgeon's discretion, right? Don't go in for the natural look. After all, why are you having plastic surgery anyway, right? So this is like, and then there's a page on called From Hair to Eternity. The bane of the princess's existence is her hair. It sets her mood for the day. And it's about the issue that a lot of Jewish women who have curly or frizzy hair feel in a culture that prizes, especially, you know, back in those days, a kind of very straight, you know, blonde look. At the same time, in the 80s, these were the consumers for this book still would have been Jewish women who wanted to marry a Jewish man and live in a Jewish suburb. Yes. Right? So it strikes me that actually it was a culture that, and, and join a Jewish country club. So on the one hand, it was assimilationist to a kind of wasp aesthetic, especially of kind of personal appearance and grooming. At the same time, like there's this, you know, your, your chapter on interfaith dating makes it clear that this is still very much frowned upon and very kind of dangerous territory. So there's, it's this mix of like, it's this mix of, of shame and pride at the same time, I think. It's almost diametrically opposed. It's almost like you want to be seen as being that way, you know, to the manner born, but yet we work so hard to climb that ladder to get to that born, to get to that manner that we want to tell everyone about it, which negates the whole idea of being there in the first place. But I'm, and sort of the second piece of what I was puzzling through when I asked you that last question is like, today we're at an interesting point again, right, where Jews are trying to be really proud of being Jewish. We're seeing that more and more in like recent weeks and days and years, right, where it's like, oh, I'm going to come under attack for being Jewish. I'm going to be Jewish in your face. It's so interesting to basically be talking to you now about this sort of like prickly moment and this prickly stereotype as we're now asserting ourselves again. And, and I do think that's why people are sort of open to this, this idea again. There's like an in-groupness about, about the Jap stereotype that some people I think are embracing. You know, it's not necessarily a Jap anymore, not necessarily a Jap stereotype. It's, I guess you could say in a way, it's upwardly mobile and especially... They're not religious, but they're culturally Jewish and they, they're not ashamed of it. So do you look at the book ever? Do you ever take it off the shelf? No. We've had several floods and now I don't have any books. <laughs> but I did once in a while. Like my kids found it. You know, now it's cringeworthy to me. I, I would never, never, um, I would look at it with a, with a, write it completely different. If I even would use, I don't even use the word Jap. Is it painful to you? To, I mean, we, the reason we're talking to you is because your friend's daughter emailed us, listens to the show, heard us talk about the book and said, you should have Debbie on. She, she, she wrote the book. I mean, when, we, when you get that request, are you just like, oh no, they found it? Earlier, we did you know, a lot of media tours and people would get really, really nasty about it. And so I just really never told anyone. 
but no, I, I find it. That's why if people would ask, I, I, now I don't physically have any, but when I had copies of people asked me for a copy, I wouldn't give it out. I've had in later years given out copies to people who then stopped talking to me. <laughs> I'm just really, for a little paperback, it's very polarizing. When you went on tour and you say people were mean to you about it, who was mad? Who, who came to your book events oh, like and was mad? The host, no, the host. Like it would be a, for example, radio call-in show and they, yeah, it was supposed to be to talk about the book, and then they would let everyone call in and tell me how anti-Semitic it was. So Jews you know, calling like in. That. Yeah, Jews. It was always Jews. <laughs> I don't think anyone else cared. You were seen as bad for the Jews, basically. Yes. I remember there was a local Jewish paper, and the headline was, Jew foments anti-Semitism. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I was like a 20-year-old kid trying to get a promotion, really, which did work out. I did become an advertising copywriter. And met my husband. Oh, wow. I mean, and wasn't that all for this anyway? If we've read it, if we've learned anything from the book. I also think that you said before was right, which is only Jews care about this, right? Like this is so intra, so specific, so specific to like maybe urban areas. This word means something to you or it doesn't. And you don't understand these conversations. But I think I appreciate you, Debbie, to to help us continue on our conversation and our, our anthropological uh exploration of this term throughout American history. Not that 1982 is history, but, you know, sort of how it's evolved over the years. And we appreciate you coming, you know, digging this copy out of the out of the attic and, and coming to talk to us about it. Well, it's fun to talk about it in a positive manner. Debbie Habeck, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. Thank you. Mazel tubs. It's just the two of us this week, Liel. Who are you giving your coveted mazel tub to? It is a sweet, shall we say, farewell, as sweet as farewells could be. It is a tribute to a dear man who left us wanting at least another box of his family's legacy, Charles Entman, who helped run the little Brooklyn bakery that his father, William, an immigrant from Germany, opened in 1898, making it into a huge, huge, huge empire of all things delightful and good and baked. And I have a, as is evident just by looking at me, I have a very intimate familiarity with every single one of Entenmann's products. So to Charles Entenmann, who left us this week at 92, Baruch Emet. And may they serve everything that you bake up there in heaven. <laughs> we have B'nai Mitzvah Mazel Tubs, very on theme this week for Quinn Hathaway and Camille Panish from Rabbi Schwartz at Sheer Hadash. Well done, you two. We're very, very proud of you. Welcome welcome to the community of adults. Um, now get to work. Yeah, it's all fun. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> Mazel Tov. Congratulations. Yay. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Mark Oppenheimer and Leah Leibovitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia. And our associate producer is Quinn Waller. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Gary Atkins at Temple Israel in Manchester, New Hampshire. We come to you from the newly IRL offices of Tablet Studios, where we are dusting off our desks and getting back in the game. Shalom, friends. Rampage.
Rampage. Rampage. Rampage. Rampage, 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 rampage. Rampage. Rampage.